Today, I've got a good friend of mine on the podcast, CJ Davis. Davis has been in the hunting industry a long time, but since 2012 has been the president of Montana Decoys. He is a traditional bow hunter who spends his year hunting turkeys, whitetails, and his favorite, elk. Davis not only spills a few secrets on DIY strategies for hunting in his home state of South Carolina, but also for anyone venturing west. And of course, we discuss tips and tactics for decoying several species of big game. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. CJ Davis, how you doing today, buddy? Man, I'm doing great, Tony. How about yourself? I, I'm doing well, man. We are we are on the cusp of all kinds of good stuff happening. There's actually some antelope seasons open right now. Uh, deer seasons are coming in here real, real soon. And it's a, it's a good time of year to be guys like us, isn't it? It is. It's great. It's hot here where I am in South Carolina, but the deer season actually opens this week in the lower part of our state. So it's uh, it's crazy. That's that's such an anomaly. It's it's nuts down there. The season structure when when I hear people in other states bitch, and I do this too because our gun season opens um, first Saturday in November every year in Minnesota, basically. So we don't get to bow hunt the rut. You know, it's it's kind of out of the question. Right. And every time I start feeling sorry for myself, I think about you guys down there, <laughs> and you guys got a whole different ball game down there. It is a different culture down here for sure. it's a a tough place to uh kill a big one i hear it is but you know our our south carolina department of natural resources they're really trying to do things in the right direction or move things in the right direction it's interesting because and i'm sure there are other states like this but you know it doesn't really matter in our state what the biologists believe in it's what the legislatures will pass so everything that can benefit wildlife has to go through this screen that oftentimes does not have the wildlife's best interest in it. Just this past year, we uh, finally changed the turkey seasons a little bit because our harvests have been down, our population, poult recruitment, all that stuff's been in the toilet. But it's just taken so many years to get it that you're in a deeper hole you have to come out of. So mm-hmm. I, I really uh, applaud our DNR officers and biologists and everyone involved in it because they definitely have to beat their heads against some brick walls to get changes made. Man, that is a that is a common scenario in a lot of states. And the thing that sucks about it is if the general public isn't really aware of how these laws come in to be, the you know, conservation officers and the state game agency employees, they kind of become the lightning rod for, you know, the ticked off public if something changes. And, you know, a lot of times they're not in control. And they, they don't right. have, you know, they're in charge of enforcing the laws but they're not in charge of making them and so there's there is a lot that you see that in a lot of states minnesota is like that and uh it's uh i know i've got a buddy who's a conservation officer here and he 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 handles himself very well around that but you know you see (laughs) things like the cwd issue pop up and the general public is looking for somebody to be ticked at and the most obvious face for that you know for whatever the response is if it's scorched earth or you know how, however they go about it is it's your conservation officer you run into and that guy has nothing to do with what's going on he's just out there working the resource so it's it is a it's a strange dynamic going on out there 
you mentioned CWD, and I know that's a, a whole nother rabbit hole to go down, but it still amazes me how many of my buddies and, and other hunters I run into can't even spell CWD. It's just amazing. <laughs> was that an inside joke about Fred Eichler? It was. I'm glad you caught that. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, it's uh, there's still a lot of we're, – we're in an interesting time where we can get tons of information nonstop right at our fingertips, but a lot of it is – not the highest quality stuff you can get <laughs> and may not actually result in uh, some good education. And so you kind of got to filter through that to find, and you know, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm enjoying doing this podcast so much and, and chatting with, with individuals such as yourself, because we can go into all kinds of topics and get, you know, I can get your perspective on what it's like to be a hunter in South Carolina. We're going to talk about the decoys you guys are making and we can, we can spend some time on these issues and, you know, what you see consistently, no matter what is we like to paint them as a black and white thing. You start digging into them and they're so nuanced. There's so many layers to it. And it's not just something it's easier to be dismissive and say, that's awesome or that sucks, but there's so much more going on with this stuff. It's always deeper than you think. It certainly is. So for our listeners who don't know, CJ, you are the president of Montana Decoy. That's correct. And you've been you've been with the company since, what, 2012? That's right, 2012. Myself and some partners got together, and uh, the original founder of the company, Jerry McPherson, he's still a huge part of it. He does a ton of the R&D and prototyping and stuff for us. He's still out in the same little town he's always lived in, in Montana. Um, and it was his brainchild that developed this company. And I jokingly say he wanted to hunt more. So I get to do all the office and sales crap that he doesn't want to, and he gets to go hunting. So well, it's a pretty neat deal. <laughs> that's, that's the reward for uh, putting your knots on the line and starting a company. Um, that's right. You got to find some sucker to come in and manage it for you once it becomes <laughs> successful. And, and I am talking to that sucker right now, but I know I know that it's not all doom and gloom in CJ Davis's world because you get to go out and hunt some. What do you What do you have planned this year? What are you doing? So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a couple of elk hunts: one in Idaho, one in Colorado. Uh, I'm gonna do a Nebraska mule deer. I'm gonna do a Colorado mule deer, and then I hope to hit Alabama uh, sometime in January after the ATA show, and then also hunting here around home. The, the one good thing about South Carolina is we do have such a long deer season that if I'm gone for a bit, I still have plenty of time to catch up on my local deer herd. Mm-hmm. Are you are you still hunting with a recurve? I am, yes. And yes. Uh, you're sticking with it, huh, buddy? I do. I mean, you know, you and I have had this conversation. There's always these things in your career, your life, or whatever that change your perspective. And I just felt like I was getting angry at myself if I couldn't hit a quarter at 30 yards every time with my compound. And I lost a little bit of that. I don't know the 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 youthful excitement of it or whatever. I like watching an arrow spiral in and you certainly have plenty of arch to watch an arrow spiral in mm-hmm. with the recurve. It's just, and I, you know, the places I hunt, I'll, you know, one of my buddies will show up. We'll be hunting together. He'll be toting a rifle. I'll be toting my recurve. It's not about that to me. It's just yep. what I enjoy the most at that moment. And the recurve just, I just enjoy it. I love it. Yep. There's, there is a different kind of fun to shooting them. And there is a different feel to carrying out a traditional bow into the wild. It's a, it's a cool deal, and it's it's some something that comes up on this podcast a lot is that that point you just made there, where like you're you're doing that, you're not doing it to prove anything. You're doing it because just because you enjoy it. 
And that in, in hunting, it's sort of easy to get sucked into this world where like, okay, you got, it's a, it's a braggy arrogance thing, or it's like, I want to, I want to be recognized as the best. And you kind of get to a point in your life where you're like, none of that shit really matters. And I'd Mm. rather just enjoy my time in the wild. That's right. If I pull up to the check station and there's some guy with a great big deer and there's another guy over here with the four point, I'm probably going to go talk to the guy with the four yeah. point first. Cause I think he and I are going to relate more at this point in my life. <laughs> yeah. You probably got more in common with him. Me too, man. <laughs> Me too. Um, but it's, it's, it's cool that you're out there doing that with the recurve and you've, you've stuck with that. And cause you've been doing that a long time, haven't you? Yeah. It's been, you know, probably eight or 10 years. That's all I've hunted with. So, mm-hmm. Do you envision ever going back to a compound? Well, I thought I might have to. I had a little, you know, getting older, I had a little shoulder issue pop up, but I worked through that. So as long as I can comfortably shoot it and ethically shoot it, yep. and that's all about staying within your own personal boundaries that I just, I still get a compound every now and then and shoot it to play with it some, but I just thoroughly enjoyed the act of shooting my recurve or longbow so much more than the compound yep. for me individually. Yep. I just don't see myself changing that. How, how often do you shoot? Well, that's a good question because this year it's changed a lot. That aforementioned shoulder issue had me concerned. And I actually was shooting a, um, I call it a reflex deflex longbow. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really quiet. I enjoyed playing around with it for several years, but it, it was hurting my shoulder. I don't know why. And uh, I happened to hang it out with a buddy of mine and, and he had a recurve just like I do the same model and everything, a Hoyt Buffalo. And I started shooting his while I was at his place and it, it didn't hurt my shoulder anymore. I don't know what the difference is between a longbow and a recurve, or at least those two particular models. And it just made a big difference to me. So when I came back home, I started shooting my recurve again and it didn't hurt my shoulder, but I probably, you know, I'll shoot every other day this time of year at least, but I'm only shooting five or eight arrows at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually makes me a better shot because I was prone usually in August, you know, I'm getting ready to go West and I've been shooting a lot. I go through this dip where my accuracy just suffers every year in the past. Right now I stink, but this year, because I haven't shot so much, I'm actually shooting better than I ever have. So I I think it's a case of less is more once you've mastered the basic fundamentals and the muscle memory. You know, I I went through a couple of years where I hunted with a recurve and it was a weird experience for me, you know, growing up, I, I grew up shooting recurves, went to a compound as soon as I could hunt. And then, you know, after 12 years of that, I was like, man, I want to, I want to see if I can do this. And I, I had always, you know, I always bullfish with a recurve and I like carrying, uh, trad bows around when I'm just messing around, shooting, stump shooting and stuff like that. I, that's an enjoyable thing for me. Yeah. And so it doesn't you know, mess it up a, as many arrows either. No, I mean, it's just, it's just fun. It's just to yeah. get out in the woods and mess around. But what I found with my target shooting was I really enjoyed it up to a point and something would happen where I wouldn't. And it was a mental thing where I was like, man, I, I lost my confidence or something. And the first year I hunted with a recurve, um, I did pretty well, killed a couple deer and really enjoyed it. And I thought, man, this, this could be for me the next year target shooting. I just never got to where I felt. Cause you mentioned like, oh, you know, if I feel like I can ethically go out there and do this, I'm going to do it. And I just, I never like crossed that again mm-hmm. where I was like, I was scared when I went in the woods. I'm like, I don't want a deer to walk by me and I don't want to hunt that way. 
And so I had to, I just put it down. I thought I'm, I'm going to go back to the compound. Cause I don't, I don't want to be sitting in the woods and see a buck coming through the woods and go, I don't want to, I hope he doesn't come close. Like I want to, yeah. I want to go the other way with it. And <laughs> that's so not I'm, a good feeling. It sucks. And it was, it was an eye opener to me how easy shooting a compound well is and how not to take that for granted. Like, you, you know, I, I read the reason I asked you how much you shoot is because you don't need to shoot a compound that you can, if you want, you don't need to shoot it as much as a traditional bow. I don't think anywhere near there to be as good, but you want to hit that sweet spot where you're taking shots. You know, you're, you're, you're shooting a few arrows that matter and you're right. doing that consistently. And that's, that transcends weapon, I think. But it's, it's always interesting for me to talk to somebody who's like you, who's just like, man, I just, I kind of wanted to go do this. And you've stuck with it because I didn't stick with it. I got scared off and I flirt with it a lot now where I, if I, if I kind of get into a shooting funk with my compound, I'll take a, one of my recurves out for a couple of days. And I just, I feel like it resets me and it's fun. And then when I pick up that compound, it's like holding a rifle. It's awesome. I remember watching Randy Ulmer shoot a tournament one time, uh, and I noticed he was always switching his releases. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really understand that at the time, but it's because he had different brake tensions or whatever you want to call them on all of them. And I think I think what you're saying, you're resetting yourself. It's good to to break outside that norm, shoot a different release, shoot a different bow altogether. I think it just kind of resets your computer a little bit. Uh, I do too. And, you know, his, his strategy for that is, you know, you want to talk about relying on a surprise release, you know, grab into the little fanny pack thing he's carrying, you know, he doesn't know what it's going to, which yeah. one he's getting. <laughs> and he's doing that at a level that's at a, at a, you know, competition level that's hard for the average person to understand. And it it is, it's a, it's kind of, you know, we tie this to dog training a lot because of my other podcast, my sporting dog talk podcast, where it's like you can try to force something through. So in, in archery, you know, if you're if you're kind of not shooting the way you want to, you, what you see is the people will go, well, I'm going to shoot 150 times today on this Saturday and I'm going to get through this. And what happens then? Their freaking groups spread out and they just delaminate. You see it with dog training too, where instead of that little daily repetition and small lessons over time, it's like, all right, I'm taking this puppy out on Saturday and we're going to work in the water all day long. And 20 minutes later, that dog's fried you put you know you know what i mean it's just yeah it's a matter of being smart enough to know when to call it when to reset and really being a traditional archer tunes you into some of that stuff i think you're right yeah it's not an easy journey for most people i, I still remember the first deer i ever shot at with the recurve you're a pretty tall guy you could have stood on that deer's back and reached up as high as you could and the arrow still would have gone over your hand but I, I kept getting closer, so it was a matter of working through it at that point. But that was just pure nerves. You know, I was just so nervous that I had a deer in range of this stick in my hand. That yep. rush was just amazing. It's uh, it's always popular when I or my guests talk about how bad they've missed. <laughs> <laughs> and I can, uh, I, we could do, I could do 10 hours of podcasts on the, the misses in my career. And I'll, I'll never forget when, uh, the, the buck that I shot with my recurve. And so this, I was 24 when I did that, that little experiment just out of college, no clue what I'm doing in life, drunken animal, drunken idiot. I'm like, Oh, here's, here's the one thing I can control. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a good deer hunter. So I went out and I had this staging area spot that I wanted to hike to in the morning. 
And it was September, it was hot. I'm like, I'm going to sneak through this cornfield in the dark, leave way early, get into this spot, catch them coming in off the neighbor's fields. And I got in there and it was, I was a sweaty, miserable mess, made, you know, 50,000 times the noise that I thought I was going to make going in there and got into this stand way after first light, you know, just everything, you know, just pissed about everything, did everything wrong. And I'll never forget sitting there and I heard something. I looked up and three does and this nice eight pointer come running up. Just, I don't know if something spooked him off a neighbor's field or what, but you know, that buck, He's, he's my favorite deer I have mounted, and he is not very big, but he comes in and stops close, and I'm like, holy cow, I'm going to do this on a... At that time, it was a great deer to me, and I drew, and I don't know if I got halfway drawn or if the arrow had <laughs> flopped off the shelf, but I, all I know is the first time I tried to shoot that buck, that arrow stuck like six feet in the ground in front of him, and he was close, and I had, you know blackout no recollection of what happened like holy crap but you know they're quiet he didn't really know what had happened so he he took a couple hops back i got another arrow on the string and just you know shot that arrow just sunk into his side and he ran off and i was like i i couldn't believe that i had gone from seeing that buck come in making a shot where I would have missed an elephant at that distance. <laughs> and then, and then it looked like I had just whoop, dropped it right into the fold behind his shoulder. And I'll tell you what, man, recovering that buck, he only won a little ways. It was crazy, but it always comes with that asterisk of the first shot, which was horrible. And I still don't you just know. gave him a sporting chance. I mean, you let him get, you gave him a warning shot. Yeah. So uh, I did something, man. Um, so I've, so I've been there. you mentioned the whole missing thing a while ago. What's the one miss in your life that when I, when somebody says, what's your worst miss, it pops right in your head? There's uh, got to be one that just haunts you. It was a it was a night. It was it was two misses. And, I, well, <laughs> it, it's it, well, you want my top 10 list? Do you want top 20? <laughs> top one. Um, so one. I, talk, I had one. Randy Ulmer on here on an earlier episode. We talked about we did a buck fever episode and it was awesome. And I talked about missing two bucks in the same night in Minnesota, um, bad misses on big bucks, really big bucks to this day. And that was a while ago, but one that I haven't talked about. Um, I know you've hunted out West a lot. Um, probably 2010, somewhere around there. I was out in Western North Dakota, got out there four days before the season opened. I had a tag that was good for a mule deer or whitetail. And so the kind of the plan was um, mule deer in the morning, whitetail in the evenings, hunting public land, camping. And out there, opening day, the season, you can't start until 11 or 12. I can't remember. Um, but you can't start right away in the morning. It's There's a certain time of the day. And so I had time, went out to glass, and I, I found this buck, like a like a 145, 150 inch type mule deer, just this beautiful buck on public land. And I'm just watching him and he beds down in, you know, just over the lip of this hill in a spot where I'm looking at the terrain, you know, he's a long ways off, but I'm like, man, I think, I think I got my, I think I got something to do here as soon as the opening bell kicks in. So I went back and went back to camp, got my stuff ready, came back right before it opened. I checked him. I could glass him. He's still there. And so I'm like looking at the aerial photos, everything, get out of my truck, work my way all the way around this deer, get get to where I have these two 
pine trees, these cedars on the hillside as my marker, crawl up there and I peek and there's tine tips down there. Wow. And it never, that never happens. I didn't blow any cows out. I didn't blow any other deer out. It was just like, this was meant to be. And so I take off my boots. I get my bow ready, my range finder. I crawl up over there and he's bedded just quartered away, just perfect. And he's looking down the hill and I forget how far it was, 40 yards or 43 yards or something, 100% doable <laughs> for me at that time. And I, I ranged him. And I drew and I shot so fast, like rushed it so bad. And that arrow went and I'll never forget seeing the the hair puff up off his back. And he ran, he ran <laughs> 75 yards, looked back at me. And I'm just like, I had all the time in the world, all the time in the world. And I rushed it. And I'm like, I just blew the best opportunity I've ever had at a big public land mule deer. And for no, I did everything right and this is this is a lesson for bow hunting i did everything right until that last you know three seconds when you got to close <laughs> then i did everything wrong and that's all that mattered you can't you just can't predict it sometimes man <laughs> uh you certainly can't with me how about you what's your worst miss what's, no what's cj's top one no question it's an elk in wyoming it was I think 2012, I had just started this gig and I'd never set foot. It was in the Bighorns of Wyoming. I'd never set foot there before. I'd done all my scouting, you know, online maps, all that good stuff. Identified this road, go down the road, park the truck, drop off, hunt for, you know, a couple hours. It was an afternoon and I'm coming back out and it's just this great big sage flat. And I thought I heard a bugle and I was like, that can't be right. And I, I bugled back and I thought I heard another one and I keep creeping through the sage flat and it just kind of drops down. And there's this one little spring out there in the bottom with like three aspen trees. And there's this gorgeous bull standing there feeding. I don't know what he wasn't in a wallow. I don't know what he was doing. And I'm like, yes, what a great place for a decoy. So I stick my decoy up and, um, I cow call at him. He won't answer. Cow call at him again, and he's only 150, 200 yards away. It is wide open. The tallest piece of sage out there is at my knee. And um, I finally bugle at him, and he answers that. And he starts I can, he starts firing back, and he's coming up the, up the hill to me, I can tell. So I cow call one time from the decoy, and, you know, whitetail brain, they're always coming in downwind. I drift downwind of the decoy, and I'm trying to hide in this sage that there's no way I can hide in it unless I'm laying down, and I can't shoot my bow laying down. So he walks straight up to that decoy. He is like as close as I am to my laptop from it. He never even looked over at the tall, goofy guy with the stick bow. And I promptly send one right under him. He hops back. I cow call at him. And then he notices me because the cow call came from there. And he literally walks straight to me and sits there and just stares at me for what seems like an hour and a half. And it's just steadily getting dark. And I know I don't have pins on my stick bow, but I still, I'm not going to shoot when I can't see really good. Mm -hmm. And I finally just had to stand up and throw my hands up and spook him off. He just sat there and stared at me the whole time. But I can still, <laughs> to this day, I don't even have to close my eyes. I can still see that arrow arching. And you know how it is with a stick bow. It, it looks like it's going to drop right in there. I mean, it was just spiraling beautifully. And it just dropped like a foot and a half too much, scooted right under it. It was so just, you, you just uh, misjudged the range or what? I think, and I learned something from that. That's a good, a good call on your part. 
I think when I go out west, I'm not used to, I'm shooting in my yard, everything in the east coast is tighter. So, you know, my effective range hasn't changed. I just think it's different. And, yep. you know, that was a wide open sage flat. And I think my brain just miscomputed because I definitely, you know, when you make a good shot and you don't, I don't care what it is, a bow or rifle or a bazooka, you know, when you made a good shot and I made a good shot, yep. my computer just failed me, but yep. I failed. My, I mean, it was my fault. I missed the thing, but it was a clean miss. Him sitting there staring at me, facing me at like 20. I mean, it was just painful. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, yeah, he taunted you, but the, the lesson there that you're talking about, man, it is a, it's a hard thing to understand the range estimation and just your, your understanding of distances in a new environment. And you see this a lot when, you know, it it probably doesn't happen the same way when Western hunters come East, but when Eastern hunters go West and you get into that up and down environment or you get into that wide open prairie, it is just a, it's a weird thing. Your brain, you're just, there's no frame of reference for you that you're used to. And so it's really easy to misjudge range. And that's another good thing about a stick boat. Like you were talking about stump shooting. I've always got some blunts with me and I walk around yep. annoying anybody that's hunting with me because I'm shooting at pine cones <laughs> and stuff, especially for the first two days. Anytime I go out West, cause I think I need to reconfigure the computer a little bit. So do you, do you ever uh, hunt small game with your stick bow? I do. Yeah. Do and I'm, I'm convinced a squirrel is like the hardest thing to kill with a stick bow in the world. I, I think they hear it whistling feathers and that's like hawk or whatever to them. Those dudes will be gone before my arrow even gets close enough to miss them. They are uh, squirrel are an underrated game animal with a bow. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, not and not only not only because of that, you know, you think like, you know, you go out with a 22 or a 17 or something, you know, if if you're in a normal squirrel environment, it's not like terribly difficult. Right. When, you, when they're peeking their head around the tree or pinned up against a tree thinking maybe this guy doesn't see me with a bow, it's just a lot different. And that vital zone on a squirrel is real small and they are real freaking tough. <laughs> the first squirrel I ever killed with a recurve, I honestly thought I was going to mount it. It was like just <laughs> such an accomplishment because I don't even know how many I miss. And I, I'm... I'm not the greatest trophy hunter in the world by any stretch because if I'm sitting in a tree and I'm deer hunting and a pig comes by or a squirrel hops by, it's it's like the green light just comes on. If it's legal, mm-hmm. it's for me kind of thing. And I I don't know how many squirrels I've shot at from a tree that I just it's just embarrassing. They're easy to miss. Um, I had a I had a situation here in by my house in the cities where they um, the county bought some public land and on. The year that they bought it on this land, there was an old homestead, old farmstead. Mm-hmm. And there was a, you know, there was a bunch of junk buildings in there, but there were a couple silos. And what they did was when they came in, they had the fire department come in and they burnt down the house and used it as a training exercise. But then they had this silo and they're, you know, they're trying to make it so all this stuff's gone. So it's not a liability issue. So, you know, when the public's in there hunting full bore, they're not climbing up on top of a silo and falling off, you know. So they came in in the end of December at some point and they knocked down one of those silos and it was full of corn, full of it. And the squirrels from seven miles around started coming into this public land. And my buddy and I went out there squirrel hunting one day and these, these fox squirrels would come in along the river and then they would take the tree line into this, this giant corn pile there that the county left. And so you could go in there and squirrel hunt 
and just sit there as the parade of squirrels worked their way through the trees. And we went in bow hunting squirrels one day and it was like, it was so fun. <laughs> it was, I, I had, you know, get a lot of arrows. We had shot, it, you know, it was a, it was a nice setup because you could shoot at them in the tree and there was a great big fallow field behind where you were shooting. So all the arrows just boom into the ground if you missed. <laughs> And it looked like a porcupine, a giant porcupine <laughs> quill out there. We, I, th- I think we got, it's the only time in my life I've got my seven squirrel limit with a bow. That's uh, impressive. Yeah. How but many it was, did you shoot at? I don't, a lot. <laughs> I didn't six? shoot a hundred percent. six and got seven. I did not shoot a hundred percent, believe me. Um, <laughs> and neither did my buddy, but it was, it was pretty incredible. We, we try to go out. You know, we've, we've done the bunny thing some and the grouse thing, and we try to do that. And that's a, it's so freaking tailor made for small, for traditional bows. The small game thing is, mm-hmm. it's so fun. So man, let's talk, you, you mentioned the elk decoy thing, but I want to talk antelope first. Cause that's, what's coming up right now. Um, I've used your decoys for all kinds of stuff over the years and I, I want to, I want to give a little, a, a little asterisk to this. So People will reach out to me and they'll say, hey, what decoy do you recommend? What what call, what scent, what lure, whatever. Everybody's looking for the silver bullet. Everybody's like, hey, what's going to take me from no dead antelope to a dead antelope? And I'm always like so hesitant to I have to I have to use weasel words when I answer it because it's like, you know, I don't know how hard you hunt. I don't know where you're hunting. I don't know if you can shoot. I don't know how much effort you're going to put in. And so I'm always like hesitant to recommend stuff but it's pretty easy to recommend montana decoys because they're so lightweight they're so easy to carry into a pack and for certain situations it is really tough to beat them and i think i think the best learning experience the best thing you can go through with them out in the wild is antelope during the rut yeah that's just an amazing experience and i'm always perplexed that more people don't talk about antelope hunting you know for a guy coming from the east coast that's such a great gateway species to western hunting they're usually affordable even if you don't go the diy route and they're a beautiful animal and i mean if you get if you're lucky enough to get one and you do a shoulder mount or even a european mount they're so unique and so north american that it just amazes me people don't go after them and the meat is fantastic it's like one of my favorite things to bring back so I get it totally on the the whole antelope thing. And they are in terms of decoying boy, they can commit and charge and they just do all these adrenaline rush things that, that make it so wonderful. But I'm the president of a decoy company. I don't put a decoy out every time I go hunting. I, I'm anybody that tells you that I think is lying because it's a tool and every job has a specific tool or tools that will work. And sometimes you're doing yourself a disservice. If you're using a decoy, you've got to, it's like anything, just buying a bow doesn't make you an archer. You have to put in the time and become proficient with it. And using decoys, you know, you the more you understand animal behavior and the timing of the season to them, the rut versus the non-rut, what the pressure's like, you know, what the herd dynamics are like, all those things just give you more clues as to which tool you use that day. But antelope, you know, if you hit that sweet spot in September when they're rutting, and you top a hill and there's one buck out there with a harem of does and he's already running one little buck off. 
that is like the perfect opportunity to creep as close as you can and pop that decoy up. I mean, it's just yep. an amazing thing. And we've always tried to, Montana has always tried to be something different. You know, we're not just building another plastic mold decoy. We always want to do things a little bit different that fit kind of what Jerry's mentality and to a certain extent what my mentality is. And, you know, I, I don't like carrying stuff. I don't like being burned down. I want to be burned down on the way out, not the way in. Has yep. always been my philosophy. Yep. Well, so uh, let's let's back up a second here, because what you're talking about is reading the situation and knowing, hey, is this is this the time for this tool or not? And so people think they're going to buy a decoy, they're going to go out on the prairie, see some antelope a mile away, pop that sucker up, and they're going to come running. And that's not how it works. What you're talking about is is anybody who's seen it. You know, you, you'll get this one good buck out there and he's got some does around him and the little guys will show up. They'll pop up on, the, you know, random little ridges or they'll, they'll, they'll come walking in and start getting too close for his comfort. And that dude will take off and blow those little guys out. And when you can see that, it's sort of like anybody who's ever bass fished. If you've ever fished spawning bass and you flip in there, you can you can read their body language. Some of them just swim right off. Some of those males guarding a nest are going to get real ticked off, and you see their fins almost start to vibrate. Mm-hmm. It's just re- it's reading, and then you know they're going to eat. But it's just reading the situation, and for. Uh, decoying that situation, it's like a matter of getting in, like you said, at least w- w- what distance would you say like is is the money distance where like if you cross this threshold and he hasn't seen you yet and you pop it up, you, you're going to probably get a response out of him. You know, the easy answer to that is probably 100 yards, I think. But, you know, some variability with the terrain and, and all that stuff. Getting Getting that close to an antelope buck with a herd is not the easiest thing in the world if you're just trying to stay covered. you got to kind of get lucky on the terrain and stuff like that. But I think if you can get within 100 yards and you have that situation you just described, I think that's as, about as good as you can hope for. And, and you're talking about those little bucks creeping in and popping up. It's hilarious to watch them because they're kind of doing that – I'm just walking through thing. It's like, I'm not really looking at you. And then, oh, I'm going to eat right here, pause and eat for a little bit. And it's like, they want to be here, but they're kind of doing like this to get there, you know, and you just see all that dynamic. And again, that's, that's antelope hunting because they inhabit somewhere that you can see all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, elk are in the timber, a lot of places, whitetails are in the woods too. So you get to see more of that interaction. I mean, I've been on hunts in the early season when you're in a ground blind and you literally watch this herd of antelope all day long. You want to shoot yourself at the end of the day for being stuck in a blind that long, or at least I do. But it's it's just an amazing opportunity. And then you're you know you're out west. If that's the first thing you or first time you've ever hunted, it's just awesome to me. It's a beautiful app. It is, and it's it's important to remember. So you know you might find that herd you can get to a hundred yards, but what you you, and you might not. But what you want to do is read the situation and you want to employ that decoy after you've really worked your way into where you believe is as close as you're going to get. And so you see people pop up a decoy and start walking toward antelope. That doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well. It, It probably can in certain times, but for the most part, you're going to have a low success rate. What, what happens or, you know, theoretically what happens when you when you take the time, you use the terrain, you crawl in there, you, now, now you get eyes on them and you go, okay, they're looking away or something. You get ready, then you pop that decoy up and that buck looks and he goes, holy balls, there's a, there's a teenager right here in my front steps. Slipped in. It, it's just uh, slid into the DMs, I think the kids say. Um, 
it's just like the the you can just see the body posture change on them and they're like no no bro i'm coming yeah. for you that's not and working I, i'll tell you what you want to circle back to missing um you want to find out how you how good you are at keeping your act together shooting at an animal <laughs> just wait till the first antelope comes charging in and you're like okay 65 yards 23 yards and you got to just you got to get that shot off it, they are easy to miss oh yeah yeah, they're not that hard to kill, but they're easy to miss. Yeah, they are not like squirrels. Um, <laughs> squirrels are squirrels will cling to life and make you feel like you've punched your ticket to hell if you shoot them wrong. Um, antelope, you you know you can't scare them to death, but you can get close. Um, but it's it's that it's such a cool it's such a cool opportunity. Let's talk let's talk elk, man, because this is something. I'm I am not a good elk hunter and I have never decoyed elk before and so this is something that you know when I was making notes about when I knew I was going to talk to you I'm like I'm curious to hear what CJ has to say about when when's the right time to use an elk decoy that's like my favorite animal to hunt in the world is just elk and I think there's a lot of guys that would say that and and on some days I'm I'm kicking myself for not living out west and other days because i know my personality i'm glad i don't because it's always new and i only get a little bit of it every year and it only lasts for one month really if you're a bow hunter but decoy and elk i I firmly believe they can be as susceptible to a decoy as antelope or anything else much more so probably than a whitetail i think whitetails are the toughest ones you really got to have your act together there but elk are are they're big animals they're used to seeing other elk they're kind of a social animal most of the time and it's just a, it just adds realism to a setup because you're usually calling elk. You know, most people that are employing a decoy are calling elk unless they're, you know, on a wallow or something like that or a water hole and they've got some staked out around it like a confidence decoy. But they're an awesome, awesome animal to decoy. They're an awesome animal to hunt no matter how you do it. But Jerry and I go back and forth on it a lot. And I think it's our hunting styles are a little bit different. And, and Jerry's killed some big bulls. He's definitely the elk expert. I'm just the guy out there enjoying it. But Jerry will tell you, he probably flashes decoys more than he walks up, sets them out, backs off to hunt. But then you get to talk to him a little bit. And the first year we came out with the RMEF elk, which is a larger cow elk decoy for us. It's a little bigger than most we've had. He'd set it up behind him and crept forward and was called into this bull and, you know, you give it enough time, nothing's happening. Jerry's a little bit like me. He doesn't like to just sit there all day. And he turns around and the bull's standing by the decoy. Somehow it <laughs> looped around behind him. So it just depends on the setup. But he's, he's really big on trying to find the elk first, show him the decoy, put it away. And he thinks it triggers like a curiosity. I know there was a cow there. I heard it. I saw it. So I'm coming over there to it. And, you know, uh, we just posted a blog on MontanaDecoy.com about why do we make four elk decoys? Because really, you think about it, why do you need four elk decoys? That's kind of random. Well, we've got Miss September that's in a feeding or watering pose. So if you are, you know, before the rut or after the rut or whatever, that's kind of a confidence decoy. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got the RMEF elk because it's a big broadside elk, cow elk. It's visible. It's easy for them to see. And then you've got the Eichler elk that's kind of looking at you or the elk coming in and and fred eichler firmly believes in that pose and i'm not going to argue with fred eichler because he's killed a ton of elk too he he always justifies it whenever somebody asks him he's like what's the first thing a a cow or a doe or anything does when another animal of their species is coming in they're looking at it so that that's kind of what he goes to 
And it, it's uh, and then we created the spike elk because, you know, you got those situations just like with antelope. You've got that herd bull and he's running off all these satellite bulls. And, you know, an elk rack is a little bit harder to run through the woods with than a antelope buck is with horns on it. But and a spike elk is not legal in all areas. So it's kind of a little bit more of a safety factor there. But you're trying to hit different triggers. And it we're talking about elk, but it applies to everything. You're trying to hit different triggers to cause a reaction. And that reaction, if you've thought through it properly, it always ends up with getting the target animal you're after into your bow range. So that may may mean it has to come right to the decoy. It may mean the decoy is behind you and you shoot it as it goes by you. It just depends on the the situation. And again, reading the animal. If I get asked, all right, I've only got one decoy. Which one am I going to take with me? You know, it probably you're going to know where you're hunting. If you're hunting in Colorado in the high country, or if you're hunting some more open area in Wyoming, you know, you can kind of figure on those things. What's going to be the most important element. A lot of times it's just, I need something I can easily carry because I'm, you know, I got a 60 pound pack on going in already. So maybe I'll go with the Eichler elk and just take the strings and not even use leg poles. Cause I know I'm in a brush or tree area. Yep. There's a lot of little nuances to it. Well, yeah, and you know that's always a consideration when you're elk hunting. I mean, it, every every ounce matters. But the, what you're talking about with the four different offerings, the the most the easiest way to you know maybe maybe get everyone to understand why that matters is if you think about whitetail hunting and you think about the decoys we had access to, you know, fifteen twenty years ago. Your typical full bodied decoy, plastic. Um, head up, doe, ears up, you know, eyes wide open. That decoy soured a lot of people, including myself, on decoying for a long time because it looked like it was signaling a high alert doe. Mm. And all the other deer that looked at it go, well, okay, what's <laughs> what's what's gotten her crowd? Why are her undies in a bunch? Because I don't like that look at all. Yeah. And then just the difference – uh, of that kind of decoy versus like a whitetail head down decoy, the response is incredibly different. And I and, think it's a curiosity thing too, because is that deer feeding on something I don't know about? Is that a doe? Is that a young buck? You know, maybe they can't tell that from where they are. So it just invokes a, I need more information. Oh, uh, it does. And it, you know, not only that, it gives you a chance to call cause they don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you want to grunt or bleed or whatever, they just, they just know they see a deer over there and there's something, you know, anybody who's been bow hunting a while knows very rarely is the first deer that goes by the big one, you know? And if, if mama goes out with her twins and she's in the field and she's happy, or there's a lone doe out there, you see the floodgates open up. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, but if that deer is real cagey and run around out there and doesn't like it, the the whole situation changes. And I really think, you know, I've, I've had a lot of situations early season using some of your past decoys where I'd put them out in a bean field because, you know, there's 200, 300 yards where these deer could come out and I want them here. And, right. you know, it might not be super callable. And so a head down decoy in the or a natural non-alert, like non uh, super worried looking doe decoy, they'll come out those, those mature does, they'll come out, they'll look at it for a while and go, I wonder what she's up to. And then you just see it just switch. And all of a sudden they go to feeding and almost always it's just in your direction. And it's like, they're just going to go over, check that doe out. And it's, it's crazy how often that works in situations where it's not the rut. It's not, 
you know, it's not that typical time where you're putting the buck out and you're hoping another buck who's all charged up on testosterone comes in and crab walks his way in and rolls mm-hmm. his eyes. I mean, there's, there's a lot to that interaction, which makes them so cool. I like sitting in the woods with the decoy. I think most people think of fields and big openings when they're talking about decoys, but sometimes in the woods, you know, if it's a great big around here where I hunt great big white Oak flat or something, you know, those deer are just almost aimlessly moving through hitting whatever trees dropping at that time. And so you pop a decoy up. If I know the wind direction and I kind of have an idea of the bedding area, pop the decoy up behind me and I'm just pulling them a little bit closer. And let's face yep. it, I need them a lot closer to me with my <laughs> stick bow than you do, but I just need to pull them a little closer, more alter, alter their travel route more than really expect them to walk right up to it on any given time. And yep. I also, I'll tie a pull-up rope to my decoy. And if the deer is coming where I want him to go and it looks good, then that's great. But if he's drifting off or he's too far out, I've got my pull-up rope to it. Of course, ours are too deep. They're laying down flat. He'd about have to step on it to see it. And then you could just pull it up, make a grunt, make a bleat, do whatever you want to do. And he's got, you know, it's visual confirmation if he's not coming already. And it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a safe way to deploy it. It's not stuck out there 20 yards in front of you and you can't get rid of it if you don't want it there. Yep. Yeah. That situation sucks when you start seeing the negative reaction to it because you're using it wrong and you're like, well, now what do I do? Do I get down? Do I go over? And you know, it's, it's dynamic. I remember uh, Mike Strandlin, the the former editor of Bowhunting World telling me that he wanted to build decoys like yours that had a string so he could just pop them up when he wanted to and drop them down if the situation wasn't right. And his, you know, his idea, if I remember correctly, was, you know, you see that cruising buck and it's the right one. You want to pop that thing up and he's going to look over when you're calling or whatever. But if it's does coming through or little bucks or something that you just want to keep going through naturally, you leave that sucker laying on the ground. Exactly. Exactly. So there, there, there's a lot to it. You guys also have the, you know, the, the decoy I get asked about a lot is the, the moo cow decoy. Um, the, 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 you know, that one is people think, you know, oh, there's mule deer, there's, you know, everywhere you go on national forest, there's cows, um, and, you know, antelope you see in, in, in with the cattle all the time. And they think that's the one that they're going to get that's, you know, they're going to pop that sucker up and they're just going to walk right to that 80 inch goat, run an arrow behind his shoulder and be done for the day. But it's not so simple, is it? Most of the time it's not, you know, never say never. And that has worked before, but you've just got to pick your pace. Cows don't just walk sideways straight up to a antelope buck standing there. So you got to be patient and zigzag, just like those little bucks we're doing, we're talking about, you know, you're kind of feeling your way in and letting them get comfortable with where you are before you go to the next place. But that, that moo cow is, uh, it's one of those decoys that I chuckle at every time it comes up because we sell a ton of them and we sell them to people, antelope hunting, elk hunting, mule deer hunting, turkey hunting, waterfowl hunting, whatever, you know, people love them and they're great. But we used to make it in a black cow. And everybody wanted a brown or a red cow. So we make a red cow. Now all I hear about is, why'd you get rid of the black cow? It's like I can't win. And if I had two skews like that, it would it's, it just wouldn't be worth it. We don't sell that many of them. But it's interesting. And then you get the guy that's like, why do you make a cow decoy? Is there wild cattle somewhere? Well, yeah, probably in Texas, but that's not really what it's meant for. And that thing's huge. You know, you and I could get behind it and we're completely yeah. covered. It's got the little view through screen in it. It's a great. I call it almost a stalking shield or, or mobile yep. blind. It's not as, it's not going to be as simple all the time of pop the thing up, walk straight at it, shoot him at 20 yards, you know? Yep. Yeah. You got to think about how, 
You also want to make sure the bull's not in the pasture too. (laughs) That's, that's an excellent point. Um, I'll have to check and see how good of insurance we have on this podcast before we <laughs> offer up advice on uh, get in there with him. He'll be fine. He, w- he won't even pay any attention to this moo cow thing. I swear he won't get gored. Um, I've tried that walk straight at him or kind of meander your way in. Sometimes it works. Sometimes, especially if the if it, you got like antelope that are feeding and mm-hmm. they can kind of like, but a lot of times they'll just keep that little buffer zone, but a, like a bedded one. He, you know, he's like, oh, I don't, I don't like the way that cow's moving, but you know, anybody who's spotted and stalked enough knows, you know, you spot that antelope out there, you spot that mule deer, whatever we've used them for pigs too, actually, but you, you will go, okay, here's my route. Here's the wind. This is what I'm going to do. And then you get to a spot that's, you know, 400 yards or 800 yards from where you left and you go, Oh, I ran out of cover and I need to get across this to that next mm-hmm. patch of cover. And for us, that was when the cow decoy came in and we could just pop that sucker up, crawl across there, fold it right back up. And we've gotten through a place that you wouldn't get through any other way. You'd be hung up. Yeah. And it's just, it like, it's like a little uh, connection to the next cover a lot of times because you're not using it uh, to go at your target animal a lot of times you're just using it to like oh i gotta bridge this gap or get to the other side of this draw or there's just a big gap between these cedars and i need to go from here to there and it's it's a really good option in you know pinion um badlands type cover breaks there's 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 some places where that's freaking deadly if they're if the animals you're after are used to cattle which they usually are that's a great point. You know, that type of country, you may have to backtrack a mile to get around if you can, property lines, everything like that. All of our decoys, to me, the one thing I've always tried to do is, is we make them purpose-built. And we really talk about that more with like the freshman whitetail buck, but they're purpose-built, which is also why we have so many. We don't just have a deer decoy and an elk decoy. We have several different versions because they're purpose-built for a certain scenario, a certain time of year or something like that. And the freshman... I'm jumping around here, but that freshman buck, he's got a, a, a two-year-old body. You know, his stomach is up, and, and he's long and lean, and he's got this little small rack, but his head, his nose is down. His ears are laid back. He's forehead forward. He's in an angry, aggressive posture. So that that's a decoy that, you know, it's best used during that peak time when they're when they're battling and all the great things are going on in the, in the early pre-rut to me, but that's not maybe the decoy I want to put out to do your scenario of in the beans. It just would be an odd thing. So our, our decoys are purpose built and you have to think about that a little bit, in my opinion, depending on the season, et cetera, and stuff like that. But I mean, you can name a decoy and I'll tell you why it's built that way. We always try to think through that. How about the deer rump? See, that's just a great one. That's a perfect decoy for the guy that hates to carry stuff. It folds up so small. It's got the teaser tail on it, which gives a little motion in the wind. It's the one I do that hanging it out out of my stand technique with, and it just lives in my day pack 99% of the season. It's back there. It may never come out on two or three hunts, but it's always there. You can even run it with one leg pole if you're really a minimalist. And it's again, it goes to that, you know, its head's not down. It's kind of away in a sort of a relaxed cock geared kind of pose. That's like, I'm just hanging out here doing my thing. Mm -hmm. So that's a decoy you could use most any time of the year, but the size of it and things like that, it just lends itself well to packability. That was kind of the main thing behind that one. 
I am, uh, I'm getting ready. I'm basically packed up here to, to head out to Nebraska for their opener and, and do, uh, do a little whitetail hunt down there on some public land. And I have one of those packed cause I keep thinking about some of the, I'm, I'm going to be hunting some pretty wide open stuff mm. and I'm going to be in some natural blinds and some sketchy setups. And so I'm, I'm bringing one along just in case I need to buy myself a little bit more ability to move. Mm-hmm. You know, if you put that up, they kind of don't get the movement behind it as easily or as a confidence thing on some of the water I plan on hunting. And, you know, to, to your point about the, the timing and what, what's, what, what serves best or not. I mean, I also used the decoys last year in uh, Oklahoma on public land during the rut. And so it's, it's a pretty versatile, pretty lightweight, awesome kind of, uh, option for a lot of different setups and it's just so easy to carry yes and if you're a scent guy you know there's legalities you got to check on that now with cwd and all that stuff but you know if you're Mm -hmm. a scent guy you can put it on that tail and at the end of the hunt chunk the tail pick you up a couple more of those before your next hunt you're not riding around with a decoy that smells horrible yeah i'm i uh (laughs) i i use scents randomly sometimes during the rut you know but man, I can spill a bottle of dope piss in my truck <laughs> like it's nobody's business. And I have done it a couple times where, you know, like the back seat, like the bench seat where I'll set like a bottle of dopey down and I haven't screwed on the cap correctly and it'll tip over and run in between the, oh my God. <laughs> that is awful. It is awful. Um, I did, I, I, <laughs> I busted a bottle in my, uh, my uh mud room one time and my wife discovered it and was not oh, that happy with me gosh so basically some... anybody that's deer hunting with you needs to make sure you're driving your truck not yes. not not in theirs at all my there's always some kind of nastiness going on in Ugh. there there's something spilled or some dead critter got you know some feathers i brought from my girls or something like that <laughs> Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. So CJ, we've gone through a lot of different things, uh, with some of these decoys, some of the, some of the hunting strategies, um, you, so I want to explain something quick. So this is not a sponsored thing. CJ is a friend of mine. Um, we aren't, we aren't taking any sponsorship. We're not doing any of that stuff for this podcast or my other podcast for a while. We're building an audience. And I wanted you to come on because I knew you'd be able to talk decoys and I use your decoys a lot. Um, but you, you offered up something to the listeners that I want them to know about, um, in case they like anything that we've had to say. So can you let them know what that is? Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's a code that's good on our website, montanadecoy.com and it's hunt for real 19, all caps on hunt for real and the number 19. And it's a 30% off code and you can use it on any decoy you want to try. So if anything we've talked about here sparked an interest or something you've been thinking about, but weren't real sure about now would be a great time to do it. Cause that's a pretty good discount for us. So that, that's a good deal. Um, and you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that I've liked your decoys as well, because some of those, you know, it, it's easy to spend a lot of money on decoys, but the reality for the average hunter is they're not going to be in that situ- that many situations where it's like, this is the one. And so to justify spending a couple hundred bucks or 500 bucks on a deer decoy, a lot of people just aren't going to do it. 
yeah. and they're missing out on this chance. And your guys, even before the discount, are way more affordable than that. And so th- this is a good opportunity to try them out. If you're interested, go check out Montana Decoy. Punch in that code. Um, CJ, I thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. I hope... Uh, I hope you kill so many elk and other critters this year that you have to buy three extra chest freezers because it sounds like you got a hell of a fall plan. Um, but but I, I really appreciate you coming on, buddy. Hey, I enjoyed it, man. It was great. I appreciate you inviting me and uh, always enjoy a conversation with you. We always end up down some rabbit holes, but that's the fun part of it. So. We, You know, I, I'm actually proud of us because we stayed pretty on task on yeah, this one. Yeah, it's not too bad um, for us, yeah. So we, we both must have uh, – we, we did something right today. But anyway, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. No problem, Tony. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the Hunt for Real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com, our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.